I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we'll hear from Franco Recchia about types and susceptibilities of organisms involved in post-cataract endophthalmitis. We had noticed a trend just on an anecdotal level in the late 90s that we seem to be seeing some more severe cases of endophthalmitis and wondered whether the virulence of these organisms was actually changing. We'll also hear listener comments at the end of the show. First, this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. Endophthalmitis is a significant cause of morbidity after cataract surgery. Rapid identification of the pathogen, usually a bacteria, and application of appropriate therapy is paramount. But are we using the appropriate intravitreal therapeutic agents when we prescribe ciprofloxacin eye drops or give subconjunctival injections of ANSEF? Are we really achieving prophylaxis? My guest today, Franco Recchia, investigated nearly 500 consecutive cases of endophthalmitis to look for trends in the bacterial pathogens themselves and in their susceptibility to antibiotics. I asked Dr. Recchia to describe the design of the study. What we did, Josh, was a a retrospective study of consecutive cases of endophthalmitis after cataract surgery, basically the Will's Eye Hospital experience over 11 years. This stretched from 1989 through the year 2000. We had a total of 497 consecutive cases. So this was endophthalmitis following cataract surgery with a clinical diagnosis of endophthalmitis and vitreous specimens taken in all cases. The goal was to look at the trends evolving in both the bacteria or the infectious organisms isolated and the effectiveness of our antibiotics against these isolates. We had noticed a trend just on an anecdotal level in the late 90s that we seemed to be seeing some more severe cases of endophthalmitis and wondered whether the virulence of these organisms was actually changing. So that's what prompted the study. We looked at uh, our consecutive cases 
and then divided them into two time periods. So splitting the 11-year time period into a first half from 1989 to 94, and then a second half time period from 95 to 2000. And the goal of that was to compare, again, the isolates and the antibiotic efficacies from the earlier versus the later time periods and see if there were any changes over time. The other advantage of that was that the earlier time period very closely paralleled the time of the endophthalmitis vitrectomy study, the EVS, which was a multi-center randomized study of endophthalmitis to look both at the microbiology as well as treatment. So we had a an internal control, if you will, of our own patients versus a national registry from the EVS. And how did your patient population from that first period, from period one, compare to the patients from the EVS? They were fairly similar. You know, the typical patient undergoing cataract surgery tends to be more mature. So our demographics as far as age, gender, race, and medical history were fairly close to the EVS. In our study, overall, for example, the average age was about 73. We had about 43% male and 57% female, mostly Caucasian, but this also reflected the general population, and about a 15% rate of diabetes. So this was about what one would expect in a rough cross-section of the United States. Now, if there weren't really substantial differences between period one, the, the early period population, and the EVS, were there significant differences in the presentations of endophthalmitis between the patients in period one and the patients in period two? The demographics between the earlier and later time periods were, were the same, or essentially the same. But there were some differences in their clinical presentation. The main difference was the time after cataract surgery in which they presented. In the second time period, in the later time period, patients were coming to us and being diagnosed sooner than in the earlier time period. For example, in the earlier time, about 50% of patients were diagnosed within one week of cataract surgery. That rose to almost two-thirds in the second period, and that was primarily because more patients were being seen within three days of cataract surgery. And we learned from the EVS that the most common time of presentation was about three to five days after cataract surgery. And again, our earlier time period mirrored that, but we showed a trend towards an earlier presentation. Now, whether that had to do with an increased virulence of the organism, of the infection, causing a more aggressive, more fulminant infection as a possibility, it may have had something to do with a more prompt diagnosis or maybe an increased awareness on the part of the patient or the referring doctor. But these were large samples, so I would think that there really is a significant trend there and not just a random event. Right. That, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, was whether the earlier diagnoses made in period two represented greater vigilance on the part of clinicians or more fulminance on the part of the pathology. I, I think that's a, that's a very good question. When we try to compare the clinical presentation with the microbiology, in other words, what bugs were we isolating in, in those periods, we might be able to get some information that way. Once again, we, you know, we learned from the EVS that there was a correlation between the bug 
isolated and the clinical or visual outcome. The take-home message on that paper was that typical coag-negative staph bacteria, for example, were relatively mild infection and were associated with a relatively good final visual outcome, whereas, for example, gram-negative endophthalmitis had a fairly poor visual prognosis. What we were finding, though, is that we had a greater rate of gram-positives in our second group. In addition to the difference in time to diagnosis between the two populations, were there other parameters that separated the two groups? And I'm thinking now of the vision at the time of, of presentation, the presentation um, sure. and the uh, symptoms that the patients presented with. Right. Uh, uh, good question. In, in period one, as, as we discussed, the time to diagnosis was a little bit later than we saw in period two, where patients were diagnosed a little bit sooner after cataract surgery. And along with that, overall, the, the presenting vision was worse in period two. So it wasn't just a matter of better detection or closer vigilance, but perhaps a more acute or fulminant infection as shown by a worse clinical appearance poor vision primarily. For example, in our first group, the rate of uh, 2,400 vision or better presentation was about one in four, whereas that dropped to less than 20% in the second period. We had a higher rate of LP and hand motion vision in the second period as opposed to the earlier time period. So again, a trend towards worse vision presentation and earlier diagnosis. As far as other clinical factors, you know, because of the, of the retrospective nature of the study, I can't put a lot of weight on that as far as such things as hypopion presence, pain, and other factors that we associate with acute infection. Overall, for example, pain was present probably about three quarters of the time, which is pretty close to what the EVS showed. One of the things that struck me in the study was that the patients in period one, 22% of the patients in period one presented with symptoms within three days, whereas a, close to a third of patients in the later period presented with symptoms within three days. And I'm, and I'm wondering if this is also more evidence that, that the end ophthalmic patients in group number two were, were presenting with a more virulent pathology than those in the, in the first group. That's true, and I think taken overall, the clinical picture goes along more with an aggressive infection in our patients of the later time period. As you pointed out, a greater proportion with pain uh, as well as a earlier uh, development of symptoms and then leading them to an earlier diagnosis. Franco, can I have you describe the results of the study? Sure. I think the, the results can be taken on a, a couple of levels. First of all, from a purely uh, surveillance standpoint, I think it's very important periodically to look at the trends of infections in different diseases in different parts of the country. And many hospitals do this internally just as, uh, as quality control. In, on that level, we noticed that there was a shift in the percentage of gram-positive isolates, and we were, ta we were talking about uh, vitreous samples here. Overall, uh, we did get growth or positive culture overall about 65% of the time. That was 60% in the earlier time period, 70% in the later time period. But the significant change was a greater frequency of gram-positive bacteria. We know that those tend to be the most common 
organisms that we isolate in post-cataract endophthalmitis. But in the later time period, that this was accounting for over 95% of the isolate. Of those, the majority were coag-negative staph, which came as no surprise. That is the typical bug. And along with the increase in gram-positives, obviously we had a significant decrease in the frequency of gram-negative isolates. The second uh, major finding looked at the change in our antibiotic effectiveness. We looked at the in vitro results from susceptibility testing, which is a standard panel that's done on any body fluid uh, to look at the sensitivity or resistance to a common panel of antibiotics. And the reassuring finding from a standpoint of a person who treats endophthalmitis was that the two antibiotics that we use commonly, namely vancomycin for gram-positive coverage and ceftazidine for gram-negative coverage, those showed very good effectiveness across the board. So, for example, our, our vancomycin was effective 99% of the time among, against gram-positive organisms. Our ceftazidine was 100% effective against gram-negative organisms. And that did not change between the earlier and the later parts of the study. So that tells us that the drugs that we're using as empiric therapy when a patient comes in with an acute post-cataract endophthalmitis are still very good and very effective. The more concerning finding was that there was a change and an increase in resistance to certain antibiotics, specifically uh, ciprofloxacin and uh, cefazolin, or uh, siloxan and ANSEF as uh, they're, they're commonly called. This was primarily among the coag-negative staph organisms, which are the most common. So, for example, if you looked at the all the isolates in the early time period, Cipro was over 75% effective, namely three, three out of every four was, was sensitive to Cipro. If you looked at the later time period, that effectiveness dropped to about 63%, which meant that you know, less than two out of three was now sensitive, and that was a significant change. There's a similar change when we looked at resistance or sensitivity to, to ANSEF. So that, to us, demonstrated a, a significant change in the effectiveness of some very common antibiotics against the bugs that are causing endophthalmitis. Reading over the paper, I was really shocked by what poor coverage ANSEF uh, gave. That, that's still a medication that institutionally we use now subconjunctively when we give subconj medications. And right. uh, I was really shocked to uh, see that 40% of patients in the later population, that it didn't work, that it didn't cover the bugs. Right. And, you know, fundamentally, when we're treating prophylactically, we have to think about what we're trying to prevent against. You know, for a routine cataract surgery, the bug that we're worried about is coagulative staph and other gram-positive species. So when we're choosing an antibiotic to use prophylactically, we want to make sure that that has a, a fairly good effectiveness against those those bugs. So what we found was that in, in, a, in the modern era, in, as recently as, as 2000, that these commonly used antibiotics were not as effective as we may once have thought against the common bugs that we're trying to eradicate. Now, the other part of that is that we, we do know that, or we, we, we think that uh, the, the bugs that cause endophthalmitis get into the eye at the time of cataract surgery. People have done studies sampling the aqueous humor right after cataract surgery 
and can actually grow bacteria up to 20% of samples, which tells us that some bugs are getting in, maybe at a very low level, but some are getting in at the time. We use antibiotics postoperatively to reduce the risk of that going on to cause a real infection. But we need to be sure that the drops we're using or the injections that we're using are going to be effective. Why do you think the later period was different from the earlier period? In terms of the antibiotic uh, profile? Resistance, yeah. Profile? Exactly. That, that's a very good question. I have a, a couple of ideas. I think, and this really speaks to the kind of worldwide concern of emerging resistance. There are a number of levels at which this works, it's both, both within, uh, within the uh, certain eye, within the community at large, and then, and then worldwide. After, and speaking with, with some expert microbiologists, I think the opinions are also mixed. The concern that we all share is that using antibiotics repeatedly on a large scale thousands and thousands and thousands of times, over time will induce bacterial resistance. Bacteria are multiplying once an hour, and eventually you will get a bug with a mutation that gives it resistance to an antibiotic. So with enough applications of antibiotic, it's just a matter of time that a bug develops resistance. The other concern, which I think has some uh, merit, is whether preoperative antibiotics might actually select for resistant organisms. And this is something that has never been proven in a prospective fashion and theoretically could happen. For example, three days of siloxin, for example, may select for that subset of normal conjunctival flora that are actually resistant to siloxin. If that patient goes on to develop an endophthalmitis, most likely it's going to be one of these isolates that's re- that, that is resistant to, uh, to siloxin. So I think we, we are, there are two possibilities that, that led to increased resistance. One is just globally the widespread use of a lot of these common antibiotics, both by ophthalmologists as well as other, other practitioners nationally, and, and potentially the use of antibiotics in that particular patient. Now, I am going to take your point and uh, draw two conclusions from it, two opposite conclusions from it. One of them is is that you, you can make the recommendation that clinicians limit their, their use of newer antibacterial drugs to limit the resistance in bacteria. Or, or you know, one could take the exact opposite view, which is to to, uh, say that the tiny quantities of these medications that we as ophthalmologists use, to to, to question whether that is really a significant factor in the development of resistance. And if if we feel that it's not, that resistance is is coming from other sources, uh, from other, other avenues where much, much larger quantities of these medications are, are uh, being, being used and being applied to much larger populations of, of, of bacteria that maybe if we decide to use preoperative prophylactic antibacterial drugs, and granted that's a big if, that we should make a point of using the newest uh, and, and the, and the uh, best drugs, the, 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 the fourth generation fluoroquinolones, which I know we're, we're, we're not part of the study, 
um, exactly because of the findings of this of this study to uh, say, well, you know, maybe ophthalmologists aren't really big players in the development of resistance uh, in, in these in these bacteria. Now, I know that that those conclusions are not not only not compatible, but that that they're that they're that they're opposite. And reading through your paper, and as as a clinician, I don't really know how I feel. That's a very good point. I think you, as you suggested, I think you can interpret it both ways. And on a on a global level, it is true that physicians probably account for a minority of generating resistance. Uh, it's probably felt that you know farmers feeding antibiotics to their livestock uh, on, on the order of tons probably engenders more uh, than, than we do for our patients. On the other hand, you know, by, by, by whatever way it's happening, we are seeing emerging resistance, and the, the resistance is growing faster than we have antibiotics to combat it. The concern is, I can, I can answer this in, in two ways, you can really ignore the method by which the resistance is coming on, but just realize that resistant bugs are present on our patients' conjunctiva. So we would not want to use, obviously, an antibiotic that's been around for a while and is not going to be effective. That is a case for using the newer generation antibiotics. On the other hand, we also realize that with time, these are going to become less effective. The other concern is that whether we can actually engender resistance in an individual patient. If the bacterial load is enough in a certain conjunctival cul-de-sac and there is the probability that that they can develop a mutation in a a short enough time period, that particular patient may develop a resistant drug, a resistant bug. Now, they may not pass that on. It may not become an epidemic, but it may be the cause of the resistance in that particular patient. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great point. And, you know, it's it's one that that I hadn't thought of. I just want to say in in different language what what you just said, because I, I think that it, it, it's it's a it's a point that was not not obvious to to me. And I wanted I wanted to be in be an obvious point that we, we already know that for a very large number of patients, certainly a much larger number than present with endophthalmitis clinically, that there is a bolus of bacteria entering the anterior chamber. And that by prophylactically treating these patients, we're selecting that bolus to be one that's going to be difficult ultimately to to, uh, treat. And that it's not that that there are two separate questions here. One of them is the resistance that we engender sort of in the worldwide bacterial pool. Right. Um, and, and ophthalmologists may not be playing a very large role with that. And another one is the resistance that we're engendering temporarily and locally in that particular eye uh, that is ultimately going to do us a, a dis- disservice. And, you know, I... I um, I still don't know what to do, mm-hmm. and 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 perhaps that's you know there there is no there is no clear answer. Well, I think you know certainly we want to reduce that risk for our patients. The, it's interesting that 
the rates of endophthalmitis in different countries around the world tend to be fairly equivalent. And despite a wide, widely different pattern of using antibiotic prophylaxis or even using uh, different antibiotics uh, altogether. So it reminds us that there are obviously other factors at work, both uh, preoperative and interoperative, that we still need to be mindful of. And there will probably always be some level of, of infection, unfortunately, but perhaps our attempts at prophylaxis are, are overkill. You know, for the, and it, I think the, the paper has a different messages for different specialists. For the retina specialists, such as myself, for example, as we discussed, it's reassuring that the antibiotics that we reflexively reach for to treat endophthalmitis are still, are still working. For, our, for the cataract surgeon who may have to decide maybe on an empiric treatment for a patient who presents, let's say, with a low-grade inflammation that may be an early endophthalmitis, it's important to understand what bugs are, are, uh, are the common pathogens and what antibiotics might be effective against them so that the, the empiric choice is going to be a, a reasonable one. And furthermore, I think the, the jury's still out on the advisability of prophylactic uh, antibiotics. I think we have to balance the, the, the cost, the, the extra uh, inconvenience for the patient with the benefit that we're hoping to achieve. Great. Franco, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Franco Recchia is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology in the Division of Vitreoretinal Diseases and Surgery at the Vanderbilt Eye Institute. His article, Changing Trends in the Microbiologic Aspects of Post-Cataract Endophthalmitis, appears in the March 2005 Archives of Ophthalmology. Now, comments from our listener response line. This is Carol Lee from New York, and I just listened to the presentation by Dr. Nancy Holkamp. It was an excellent presentation with uh, good details and an excellent overview of her project. Uh, it also provided some insight into the potential use of intravitreal implant for steroid use, perhaps not in this type of case, but uh, certainly uh, provides some information about the use of steroid implantation in diseases such as uveitis. Do you have any questions for Franco Recchia, or would you like to add anything to the conversation? Please call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275, or Skype, JYoungMD. Those numbers are available on our website at seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.